1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match.
0: Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Joy. So, we're going to be talking to Dr. Tim Pedigo, and he is an expert in mindfulness, something I have learned to embrace. I've always done some meditation but now I've been doing mindfulness. So there's a little bit different techniques. So we'll talk about using mindfulness to deal with stress. So I am very excited to talk to this expert about how we can reduce our stress and strategies to deal with it and some mindfulness techniques.
1: And I think that's really important right now. We have educators, we are educators, and we are not setting boundaries. And how are we coping with, do we even know we're stressed? And how do we identify those that stress in our lives? How do we process? And those are some questions I hope to ask Tim Pedigo. Now, Tim is a clinical psychologist with over 27 years in clinical experience. He serves as the coordinator of clinical training for the master's in clinical psychology program, co-coordinator of the mindfulness in the helping professions certificate program. Tim primarily teaches in the undergraduate program in psychology and several courses in the mindfulness studies concentration. His main interest area is mindfulness and its effect on emotional and social well-being. Tim is involved in several research projects which explore how mindfulness develops emotional and social learning, which leads to better adaptation and higher achievement in school. It has to be. Welcome to
0: our show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Welcome, Dr. Pedago. How are you today?
2: I'm pretty good. You know, it's the end of the semester, so there's that usual flurry, but I seem to be charting my course pretty well.
0: But there's light at the end of the tunnel and i'm sure after this term we can all take a sigh of relief and i'm looking at your background and it's making me feel better already uh hopefully talk about some of that atmosphere that we need to bring into our lives.
2: that's right i thought this was unique in that the this is in our back area of our meditation center and the buddha is like "Hmm." i mean compassion crying for people suffering yeah
0: Yes, I love it. And I know today we're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about mindfulness. As I think about stress, I think sometimes we just use the word too lightly. And sometimes we don't even use the word appropriately. So if you could just start us off with what is stress and how can we dissect what it is and what it means?
2: We just have this global term. It's like a beginning to say, you know what? Things are too much. But we then kind of go to action without a fuller uh, analysis, if you will, of what the stress is about. And more times than not, what's involved, I think probably a pretty strong or high level percentage of the stress is about ways in which whatever is going on in the external environment triggers feelings and perceptions that cause us to to really get into a self-critical mode where we get we can get down on ourselves, and we just can get scared about it. like whether we're going to meet our deadlines, and, and then we start to ruminate, which doesn't help. You know, in other words, it, it causes us to get more anxious, and it also then other things happen, like we don't sleep as well, we start eating things we shouldn't. It's like working with our own triggers and our own minds is like such an important part of truly trying to address and and deal with. Stress.
1: I want to ask about processing stress. So, what might be an appropriate mm-hmm. way that we can process stress once we identify it?
2: At this point at the university, I've, I've been trained in cognitive based compassion training, and there's some modules there that actually address what you're talking about, Amy. You know, which, first of all, we try to locate what upset us. You know, when were we last upset? And yes, we can describe or recognize what it is that was going on in the internal environment, but what were we thinking? What was there a kind of negative and critical thought? If we can slow things down and really kind of investigate our own experience a little bit, what did we start to perceive from that moment that might be unrealistically negative? That's that's an important term. You know, if you can kind of see, okay, I got overly negative there, right? And then the rumination, the stress really started to build. Then the the good news on that is we can start to say, okay, what would be more realistic? Probably less negative and probably a little more, it turns out, fair to ourselves. A little little more realistic in that way, but also maybe even compassionate. Like I think, for example, with teachers now, the amount that they're being asked to do with COVID, all the online learning. Plus, you know, even without that, I think teaching is a tremendously demanding job. There's a tendency, like I don't teach in K through 12, but at a university, the demands of the environment sometimes are unrealistic, and they can just go right into our minds thinking we have to absolutely do everything, right? Plus, we add our own perfectionistic expectations to it all. So if we can catch that, you know, and here's the important thing. It's not just about relieving stress. We actually will function better as teachers. We'll do better.
0: So I'm interested in some of those physical cues because I don't always know if I'm feeling stressed. I think when I start drinking tea, wanting something to comfort me, especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed, those are my signs of stress. What are things that we can physically look at as signs of being stressed? And I'm really interested in about signs for children. How do we know when children are stressed? What are those physical signs that we should look for?
2: I think one of the telltale signs are there how they can't sit still. You know what I mean? That they just, in in that sense, they can't concentrate very well. And that's one of the advantages uh, for kids learning mindfulness. And a lot of programs now that are, just last night I was learning about um, home classroom and that the Chicago public schools are utilizing among other programs. just to calm down, right? But they are very fidgety, can't sit still. And then very reactionary too, if you ask them to do something. Uh, This is also adults, right? (laughs) In terms of irritability. Uh, So that's kind of a behavioral. And then of course, sometimes there's, you know, you can see other more severe symptoms like aggression. There can be withdrawal. For sure, especially when it starts to tie into trauma, and it does. When you have trauma and you're under stress, there's a greater chance that that's going to be triggered as well. And so there's even a look that some kids can have if they have trauma. It's kind of that dissociative stare or looking out. Many years ago, that used to be misinterpreted as like like something's wrong with them. they have a touch, even attention deficit,' mis- kind of misdiagnosis. but really, it's the dissociative response to trauma. But then subjectively, what the person is feeling is, well, they feel their mind jumping off. There's tension in the body, stomach aches, headaches. You know, everybody has a different kind of place in the body. They experience these things. My own, own personal story is lower back. But I usually, when I'm teaching this, I say, well, what's yours? And that's why it's really important if you're going to work with stress is you have to work with body awareness because a lot of people don't even know their stress. You're so right. I, I think that's what you're suggesting, Joey. They don't. That's why we use in mindfulness, the body scan. Like, okay, let's start with the feet. How are the feet today? And you're trying to be gentle and aware. And then it's like, oh, back, the shoulders. And, and part of it is meant to help calm those areas as well. But yeah, to get aware. It's just so easy to get in, especially for teachers, into this really harsh agenda framework. I've got to get all this done and don't anybody get in my way. <laughs> no.
1: You've mentioned the word compassion and I love that, you know, when you're compassionate to yourself, you're, to one another, but what does that mean in education? What is a compassion oriented education system? What?
2: Yeah, no, that's been a really important question. Or, or the other question that goes right with it or responds to is what is the trauma informed or trauma responsive? In terms of the students, you know, there's a beautiful book uh, called Practicing Presence by an Educator Teacher. That she really talks about her whole journey with herself and getting beyond this kind of overwhelm and finding compassion for herself, but what we think happens then, and this is when, when we're, I'm involved in training uh, pre-service teachers, we really work on this quite a bit. Because when you can work with that, you have a better chance of a natural kind of compassion attitude towards the kids too. You, you still have all that you have to do, but you, you're able to let go of a little more and include the other hand, which is the relational attunement. The sense of like noticing what's going on in the kids, just like you've noticed with yourself. The sense of bringing a curiosity. I wonder why they're feeling that stress today. And in that sense, it leads to some conversations and some ways to care about what they're feeling as well. And they feel it. There's evidence to believe that when that happens, when you have like a classroom where the the kids are feeling connected, that it optimizes their learning.
0: And I guess that's why social emotional learning exercises in the classroom are so very important. But often as teachers, I think we don't do enough self-care even when we're trying to pay attention to our students. Amy and I, we were looking at a padlet of teachers, hundreds of teachers were responding to this padlet about their level of stress with remote teaching and learning. I can't tell you the number of times we read the word quit or retire, or I mean, it's just really fed up and just it was just overwhelming. You know, so I'm wondering, How do we have that self-care and compassionate for ourselves when we're overwhelmed? And what do we do?
2: It would help a little bit if we feel a little more support. Oh, (laughs) yes. All
0: all of those things were mentioned. (laughs) Yeah,
2: those external things. I just want to at least name that, right? Not just with teachers, but with the many people I work with, including because I train clinical psych students and pre-service teachers and so on. There's always this sense, I don't have time for self care. I've got so much to do. And I always think of when I'm working with someone to get them over that. And sure, they can have a good experience with self compassion or even compassion for others. But do they believe really that it's going to help them with the overwhelm? Because if not, you know what really happens practically speaking? The meditation, the time, the self care time is gone. It's just gone and then, they have, then the agenda takes over. But I have found in becoming more successful and helping people learning about this to have a kind of a radical limit. I am going to take this time, whether I have things done or not. That, Like I say, what they find, they stay with that approach long enough. They actually end up being more efficient and more effective. in order. And they don't realize it so much of the time And that's used up. It's just this jumping around, unable to focus, this anxiety, this rumination, I don't realize how much energy and time goes into that until after they've really devoted themselves in a radical way to still maintain that way of uh, self-care. And, and it's important to use self-care as approaches that are regenerative, that is, bring back your energy. We can all just go binge watch for a while. I'm not, you know, against binge watching per se. I do like a little TV here and there.
0: Yeah,
2: kind of escape. Escape, yeah. But what actually helps us to address what's going on in our minds and how these triggers are occurring? Not just a mindfulness practice. Of course, I think that's a good idea. You can do journaling. You can even converse with someone. What might be happening? A conversation could really help you get aware. Any way of like trying to disengage from what you've gotten entangled with there. So when you Approach it again, you're fresh. You're feeling like you have a new perspective. Partly is, again, it's not, I've got to get all this done or die. And that's kind of the burnout framework. Should we call it that? If there can be, I'm going to do a quality, I'm going to do what I can in my best way and then we'll see where we are, right? And, and I've been practicing that way for a while. And amazingly, I get things done. To try to microanalyze that. And, and then here's the important thing. I tend to enjoy it more, like the reasons for what I, why I came into what I'm doing come back to me. So that, that sense of satisfaction, right, with what you're doing is so important. So that's why this topic is so, I think, important because we can't, all these teachers already, we had such a high level of uh, teachers leaving the, the field after five years, right? I can't imagine what it's gonna be after COVID, right? <laughs> I mean, from what we're hearing, And I know that that's probably administrators are concerned about. (laughs) They should be, right?
1: You know, it's interesting that you are talking about rejuvenation and not just doing something that might be binge watching TV or just a replacement for your concentration on a class. I remember that one of the most rejuvenating experiences I had was during a summer institute When we focused on our writing and community and peer experiences in publishing something that was a narrative, not a research paper. So that was really rejuvenating. You reminded me of that. And that's something I hope I can return to. You know, teachers are pressured to focus on curriculum and the needs of the student impact the delivery of that curriculum. So how might these mindfulness practices affect how we perceive the child as
2: so yes the we have our our curriculum right and we have our good goals around getting a certain thing done and getting to a certain point with the students and then we have the disruption and we have the ways in which whether it's the students or something else so now what can often happen from that if you primarily have a curriculum Focus. That's that's all you have instead of what I would call a relational mindfulness approach. And what that means is in that approach, you say something is going to come up. It, there's always going to be disruption. And it could be a student, it's going to be something, but then you're going to see that as also, see that what I think about a mindfulness, social, emotional approach versus just a generic one is you're waiting for those moments where then you have an opportunity to apply that. It's a real life application of social emotional process. Everywhere from being able to talk about what's going on in the classroom, what the feelings might be, even the teacher's feelings in that moment and be able to do it, not with like this frustration, this shouldn't have happened and which often leads to blame, including self-blame, what's wrong with me, but a sense of, Okay, here we go here's one of those moments almost like i didn't know what it was going to be or but it's okay how do i just kind of open to it and see the opportunity here for learning for all of us for the kids involved yes you have structured sel curriculum sessions or even the mindfulness is done that way but then there's also the, the sense of presence i'm talking about is like you value how you are with your kids Nobody's perfect, right? We all have our reactive days to the point, though, that you're valuing those moments, too, not just the planned curriculum.
1: Well, let me follow up with that. How do we deal with difficult behaviors?
2: Yeah, and especially since I've been involved in talking about, you know, what actually is a trauma-informed trauma-responsive approach. Needless to say, and I guess as most teachers have this practice, you want to get to know your students, right, from the beginning. And you might have some suspicion of those that are going to be very difficult. And sometimes, even you know that from other teachers. This is where I think we have to spend time, if we can, ahead of time, sort of getting underneath the difficult behavior, meaning what goes on for this child? You know, what is it? Because there's always something that some fear they're reacting to. Some kind of, maybe even sometimes feeling that they're going to be a failure or maybe foolish. There's a lot of shame that's connected with trauma. Mm -hmm. They're going to feel humiliated. Even if in a situation, sometimes you can't, their behavior kind of leads you to have to set limits where maybe they have to leave the classroom, right? Or you you have to be able to be firm with your limits still, right? Right. But when it's, we're not taken away from that reality, but what we're saying though, whether you've got to know them before this or not, take some time to see if you can get underneath it and see if you can understand a little more about what might be going on there.
0: Right. So so GSU has really embraced mindfulness. I think it's wonderful. In fact, the early childhood and I believe the elementary education programs, they take a couple of courses in mindfulness. Why do you think that integration of mindfulness in the curriculum was so important? Do you know what has been some of the outcomes of implementing that in the curriculum? What has been the outcome for the teacher candidates and for the students that they serve?
2: So that's one of the articles that I have what it's, I don't know, we've been doing this for six years now or so. We've gotten better and better of them because they had the experience they did bringing it into the classroom and once they graduate, right? And I mean, they experience it for themselves then, you know, where the rubber meets the road is what, how does it integrate with their teaching? What we need to do, like uh, some longitudinal research in that sense, right? More and more when they, they see that the schools are valuing this too. And they, then they tapped in, oh, I have a whole background in this. And they actually have a sense of how to integrate it in with teaching. So the, it's the very thing I'm, I'm talking about how, because you know teachers were not trained in any of this stuff, but they these newer teachers have had that opportunity. So they think about exactly the model I just articulated with one hand, you have um, your curriculum and the other, you know, you have a sense of what's going to come up, not just mindfulness, but relational mindfulness and and how you're going to try to use this as an SEL moment. They very much have internalized that model
0: couple of things I want to ask you is mm-hmm. the difference between mindfulness and meditation, because we've heard about meditation for so many years. And I know Amy has some questions for you. But before we go, I want you to think about this. I do want you to take us through a quick exercise, mindfulness at the end. But quickly, can you explain the difference between mindfulness and meditation?
2: Yes. Thank you for that question, actually. Good point. So mindfulness is an orientation towards yourself and the world. I mean, you're trying to uh, maintain a not just an awareness of what is actually arising in the present moment, but also as much as you can, an open non-judgmental approach. Not that you're not gonna make discernments about what you need to do. You are hopefully better because you have this broader sense of what's happening within you and around you, which includes both behavior, Perceptions, feelings, and it's usually the what differs with a mindfulness approach is yes, you you know you have your ideas and your thoughts, but it has a little more of a, a relational, intuitive approach to responding. That's why I emphasize how it fits with relating to students. Technically, we could say it's non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And of course, is always changing, so you. When something happened back there, you're trying to not obsess. You're trying to stay here in this moment. So, but that has to develop. That, that doesn't happen just because you decided you want to do it. I mean, to some degree, intention is really important. The muscle building process, if you want to use an analogy here, basically when you're meditating, you're trying to keep your mind on the present and you're using the breath. One, there's many different types of, meditation but one most common is the sitting breath meditation you're trying to keep your mind on the breath which keeps you in the moment by the way it connects you to your your body you know back to that awareness of stress business generally if you can stay with that long enough that's not easy especially at first when you're trying it. after a certain amount of time differs for most people at first it takes 10 to 20 minutes uh, then what kicks in is what's called the relaxation response. There's a kind of, okay, almost like an acceptance. Uh, and, I, and it's not just a mental, it's probably more importantly, even a physical sense. Okay, this is where I'm at and this is what's happening. And what that does is it makes you suddenly more present, more available, more able to work with what's going on in the present moment. That's where relationships are occurring but then you can try other meditations like walking meditation i give students choices about what to do eating meditation you can just spend a little bit of time eating a tangerine or just very slowly focusing only on the uh, texture i've had one student said i you know i can't do this sitting meditation can i do swimming meditation <laughs> so i said sure So he would just pay attention to the water and the movement of his arms as he was swimming. And I think he felt it was useful. So you can be creative with it and find ways that it helps you focus, stay in the moment, turn to your body, relax a little more. That's the point. And then you get those circuits going in your, your brain. And the idea then is that it keeps going when you're doing other things in your day.
1: Well, I want to encourage our listeners to be reading what you've written and have out there about mindfulness. What are you reading? Who inspires you?
2: I've really—I I can say—I've really enjoyed teaching this course on what's called uh, cognitive-based compassion training. Not just because I enjoyed the the teaching of I it; mean, it's mindfulness too. But then it also uh, does some skills around developing compassion for self and others, which it's it's a program that's out of Emory University. I used to start off by uh, just doing basic breath meditation with people and, you know, these other forms of it. But what's done here is it's a guided meditation. Because you know, and I think people more need more guidance just to have like a, a soft voice sort of like saying, okay, now let's go to this next step. Teaching those, I find that students... They stay with it more, and they get into it, and they get over that hump more. The whole field of mindfulness has kind of morphed into mindfulness-compassion.
0: I was going to talk about your voice, which is very calming, and Amy and I have never been this calm in an interview, (laughs) so (laughs) so we are repeating (laughs) your behavior, and we're behaving very calm, I think that that's important. You have demonstrated mindfulness to my students a couple of times. And I kind of, in short, explain it as sometimes we meditate, we ignore things. Mindfulness is really paying attention and embracing things. In our couple of minutes that we have remaining, Dr. Mm -hmm. Tim Pedigo, I was hoping that you could take us through a quick mindfulness exercise.
2: Of course, yes. I'll even use my bell here.
0: Oh, wonderful. Our our listeners are going to get a kick out of this.
2: Yeah, so here it is. Let's just start, though, with posture. This is where you want to get a a good kind of healthy posture where your feet are on the ground, your hands on your legs. And then upright stance, not rigid. Shoulders back a little bit. Your head is even. Chin is a little down. Relaxed. And just notice, you know, is there anything that feels tense that you can maybe just um, let go of a little tension to begin with. And take just a couple deep breaths, just intentional. Breathe in, hold it a second. Release. And just inviting whatever kind of surface stress that can be. Just like, almost say to yourself, it's okay, I'm going to spend just a few minutes, this is good. You know, almost like getting yourself ready, warm up if you. And so as I ring the bell, what I want you to do is just start by focusing on the sound of it until you can't hear it anymore, okay? Still hearing it. Just by paying attention to a single sensation like that, you are already starting your concentration. Now we're gonna shift let your breath be natural and to focus on that. That is, what does it feel like in your body? Now we're going to a feeling sense instead of a hearing. And you feel it in your abdomen. So just let those thoughts come and go and try to get rid of them. But we're going to try to keep this just on the moment. I want you to see the Exhalation as an opportunity to let go, assuming like let's say there's some stress. Let go a little more. Just This is a time for you to not have to. Think. This is a time for you to let down.
0: It felt like a mini vacation. I can't say that I ever spend that much time with myself in a day so that was a great exercise amy i know that you can attest to that too just taking those few minutes of just spending time with yourself i want to put a disclaimer out there hopefully none of our listeners are doing this while they're driving (laughs)
1: Although he said you could do lots of creative things while you are mindful of your activities, maybe that focus, letting go of the stress, Mm -hmm. maybe that would help people be better drivers and get rid of that road rage.
0: Yeah, getting you through traffic.
2: When you're paying attention to your driving, right? In Mm -hmm. a relaxed way, that's improve your driving, as opposed to doing a breath meditation like where you're closing your eyes or something. Right, that's so, what you're meaning.
1: Right, exactly. So are there any final tips that you would like to share with our listeners before we leave today?
2: Yeah, like let's say right now, you're feeling like you can't quite work it in. Um, you still can try to work towards that, but you can also take what I would call sacred pauses. Just times where you're between one thing or another and you just stop and you just ask yourself, how am I feeling? Am i caught up in something I don't need to
0: like that a sacred pause
1: yes thank you for being with us today that is what we will do in between our podcast episodes and our next meeting is a sacred pause and i encourage our listeners to do the same we appreciate hearing about your work and these tips and guiding us through that exercise i feel so much more relaxed thank you
0: thank you dr pedigal you're
2: welcome
1: We hope to see you again, Dr. Pedigo, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning, Theory Versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback What conversations are
0: you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match?
1: I think it was theory probably this time.
0: Uh, Practice.
1: Until next time,
0: we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.